1-800-795-3000. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. A Camden Conference special with your host Jim Campbell is up next. Good morning and welcome to this uh, final program in our series on the 2017 Camden Conference. I'm Jim Campbell. With me in the studio, live and in person, are uh, Jean Burgo, who was the moderator of the 2017 Camden Conference, and Ray Jenkins, who was almost at the 2017 Camden Conference, uh, but was uh, unfortunately delayed in the eastern Ukraine and was not able to get back in time. Uh, This is a call-in program. We'd be happy to hear your questions or comments for any of us here in the studio. The number is uh, 469-0500, 469-0500, or 1-866-625-9378. So to begin, um, the the theme of this year's Camden Conference was... um, Refugees and Global Migration, Humanities Crisis. And both of you are involved in working in one way or another with people who are refugees. And we'll talk about in a moment just what that means. But uh, could, you, could you each tell us a little bit about the groups that you work with and, and what kind of work you do? I'll start. Thank you. Uh, my name's Jean Burgo. Thank you for uh, hosting us here today. I am the president of an organization called Internews, which is an international nonprofit organization dedicated to ensuring that people everywhere have the access to the information they need to make good choices for their families, to engage in their communities, and to hold their governments accountable, very much along the mission of this radio station we're sitting in today. We try to make sure that people, even in some of the uh, toughest countries in the world, have similar support, similar media uh, access. So we are not a media organization, despite our name. We are about capacity building, about building vibrant radio stations and print outlets and online outlets in some of the uh, countries that don't have access to to information that way. So our our, our vision is and our, our, our belief is is that this when you have good quality local news and information, uh, it, it advances economic, social, and political progress. Okay, and many of the countries that uh, probably don't have well-established media uh, infrastructures also probably have quite a few people who are not living where they would like to be. That's exactly right. And so we have a, a special a specialization, a special program that we work with refugees and uh, internally, internally displaced people all over the world because they have such an acute information need and a very unique information need. They're not in their home. They may have had a community radio station that they listen to all the time, but then when they fled, they're often in places that aren't even in their same languages. And so we have very specific programs that are tailored to the specific needs of each uh, situation because, again, the local host communities and the relationship with the people on the move and the language differences and the literacy differences, it really creates each one as a unique situation and has unique information needs. But we see in all of these situations that we view and and we've heard from our partners and and the communities in which we work, that information is as needed as as food, shelter, and water. And they really, it is such a fundamental need when you're in such a stressed situation for your families. You need to know where to turn next, where support is, and and, and it, it builds that 
that sense of agency that is so essential when you're in such a, 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 a difficult situation. And Ray, you work with people who are in very difficult situations. What, uh, what is the group that you work with and, and what are you trying to accomplish? Well, thank you, Jim. It's a pleasure to be on your program. I've been working in uh, fragile uh, states and conflict-affected environments for the last 25 years and primarily for uh, non-governmental organizations and for the United States Agency for International Development and the World Bank. And over the last several years, I've been an independent advisor primarily for the World Bank and for uh, USAID. And again, it's mostly in environments where governance is uh, challenged, where uh, social stability is not intact and where you see as a consequence population movements, uh, violent conflict, internal uh, civil wars in particular, recurrent violence. And these are precisely the kind of environments where you see forced displacement result And over the last five years or so, I've spent a great deal of my time on the forced displacement issue, primarily because it's become uh, such a a pronounced consequence of of states that are uh, collapsing and also this, this phenomenon of recurrent civil conflict in many of these states. And in fact, today, as I think you may have seen over the last couple of of, um, shows that you've had on this topic, we have 65 million forcibly displaced people in the world today, which is the largest number since World War II. Of that number, you have 21 million refugees, uh, 42 million internally displaced people, or IDPs, and about 2 to 3 million asylum seekers. And that's the largest number we've had since World War II, and it's growing, and it's, it's grown significantly over the last five years. And the reasons for that have been growing inequality, have been intensification of seven conflicts in particular, and really this um, phenomenon of, of poor governance and increasing fragility in key states. Now, you mentioned three different kinds of people in that comment. Could you, uh, could either of you or both of you make it clear what is the difference between an internally displaced person and a refugee and an asylum seeker? They're all uh, different numbers that you mentioned. They are. And in fact, this, this 65 million uh, figure, if it was a state, it'd be larger than the population of the United Kingdom or Italy or France. So it's a significant number of people, and it's growing. So it would be the 21st largest state in the world. Hmm. But a refugee, to be clear, is someone who's been forced from their home um, due to what's the technical language is a well-founded fear of persecution. And they've crossed an international boundary. They've left the country that they live in, and they've become a refugee. And that act of crossing that frontier, the boundary, is what makes them a refugee. An internally displaced person, by contrast, is somebody who's left because of this well-founded fear of persecution, but have stayed within the boundaries, within the the territory of the country in which they live. And an asylum seeker is someone who has uh, typically left their country like a refugee, but they haven't officially been granted refugee status. They've applied for refugee status, but the asylum application is being considered. 
and once they achieve refugee status, then they are eligible for the protections under, under international law that that status gives them. Well, that's an interesting point. What um, and and let me remind listeners at the moment that if you would like to uh, call in and ask a question or join in the conversation, you can do so at four six nine zero five hundred or one eight six 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 two five nine three seven eight. Um, what is it uh, the the idea of a refugee and you just mentioned the the protections that they are supposed to be afforded what are those protections uh, well there are levels of protection that you'll see for these different categories and the the most protection that's afforded for the forcibly displaced are for refugees you have the 1951 refugee convention 142 countries have signed on, and uh, the 1967, what's called the protocol, which was the addendum that came afterwards. Okay, let's just hold that for a moment. Uh, we have a call from David in Brooklyn. Yeah, hi. This is a good place to, uh, for me maybe to try to break in. Uh, uh, my my interest is has been sparked by the, uh, the current president's uh, 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 gestures, at least verbal gestures, towards creating uh, safe havens within the country for the displaced, uh, whatchamacallits, the displaced, uh, you were just talking about, the displaced residents. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm, I'm, Wishing to find some uh, germs of hopefulness in that concept uh, uh, as an alternative to the assumption that it seems to be very commonly made in our circles that these people need to be farmed out all over the world and uh, 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 taken care of in in that style. I'm just wondering whether it may not be possible to create actually a, a humanical, humanistical uh, environment within a war-torn, strife-ridden country where residents, civilians, primarily women and children, uh, would be able to go to retreat and to find safety, which would be, it would have to be uh, an area of land which was demarcated as a protection zone, but it needn't be a horrendous concentration camp. Uh, It needs to be protected. The perimeters would need to be protected from from incursion from the outside uh, dangerous elements, but I think that perhaps the UN, maybe for example, might be able to work at. You still there? Yes. Mm-hmm. Might be able to work at um, uh, creating havens within a war-torn country, which would be safe. And uh, perhaps the U.S. with all of our military force might be able to help maintain the borders of these havens. 
and and protect the uh, the airspace even overhead. I don't know how you do it, uh, but you know there may be some way. And and in this case, you 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 still have the problem. What are they? How are they going to work? What's their jobs going to be? Because the, the country's a mess, so they can't go to their work at the pharmacy or the the uh, the uh, auto repair or what have you they used to be or the library or the tannery. Okay, well, David, thank you. Um, I think that we've, yeah, we've got that question, and I think we've uh, got some responses to that because I think things have been tried like that. Let's let's see. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, thank a, you. A good example of that, uh, David, and I think the idea is a, is a good one. I think the actual implementation of it can be really, really challenging in certain places. A really good example of where exactly what you describe is happening is in South Sudan, where there is a uh, an internal conflict going on. Uh, uh, internally displaced people from that conflict have created camps right around the United Nations headquarters. There's UN offices all over the country. And they they were so, the civil war was terrifying. They fled to the UN compounds for safety. The UN helped house them and created camps around the UN. But they're incredibly dangerous places. It's incredibly difficult to create a safe haven in an actual war zone, no matter all of the good intentions you might have. And and, and even the muscle that in, in a place like South Sudan that the UN brings and these IDP camps outside of UN compounds in South Sudan are really dangerous and it's and the people that are inside of them can't leave the borders of the camps for exactly what you were saying the work that they that they need and that to keep their the livelihood of their families because the conflict is right outside their doors and so as much as we'd love to be able to create safe havens in a war zone we've seen over and over again that that it's a lot harder to do than 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 than, than we would wish and another difficult example, unfortunately, uh, can be found um, in Bosnia, for example, where we tried to do this in Srebrenica and Garajda. And the UN was intent on protecting these pockets of populations, but was un- unsuccessful in doing so with tragic results. And this is part of what may happen when you try to create safe pockets in active conflict zones. And once you do that, and then encourage people to move into these areas, then you have the ethical responsibility to protect them because you have actually encouraged them uh, to move to these areas with the promise of safety. And I believe what the caller may have been referring to, David was referring to perhaps the, the idea of creating these safe havens in northern Syria, primarily for the 2.7 million refugees that are in Turkey right now, many of whom would like to go home The difficulty with creating these safe havens would not only be protecting them in a very complex conflict environment in northern Syria, have a variety of of actors there, at least eight different militias outside of the government itself who are fighting in that terrain. But you also have the difficulty of what happens when people go into these areas, and as David himself said, it doesn't mean they have necessarily returned home. They're just warehoused in another territory, and one that is in many respects much more fragile and vulnerable than where they might have been in southern Turkey. Their access to livelihoods, their access to services is quite challenged. So it raises the question, would they be better off and more safe going to safe havens that would be difficult and quite expensive to protect uh, than they would be to stay in place until there was some kind of agreement and there was... um, 
the more remote possibility that these population flows would be used for political gain by some of the actors on the ground. And there have been cases, as I understand it, where some countries, uh, Australia, for example, and Bangladesh, um, have uh, established areas where people who are uh, coming to their countries, who are fleeing other uh, difficulties in other countries, in in the case of Bangladesh, I guess it's Myanmar, um, and essentially they have, have sent these people who come into islands and they're safe in the sense that nobody's uh, lobbing bombs at them, but um, they are unfortunately essentially trapped and mm-hmm. and have no place. That that refers back to Paul James's presentation at the Camden Conference, and, and he uh, mentioned something that I wasn't aware of. I am aware of the Australians' policies, and it is horrific, the conditions that people are left in on these islands. Uh, but he mentioned that if you you can only get refugee status in Australia if you arrive by airplane, and you cannot get refugee status if you arrive by boat. And I, I just wasn't familiar with that. And it was a fascinating concept that I think more and more countries are looking at things like that as well. And the, the other issue that raises too is that um, there's a beginning of a uh, of a different narrative in the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, the organization trusted with uh, addressing refugee issues internationally and other organizations which work with refugees, that putting refugees in artificial environments like camps or islands is not a solution. It, it doesn't uh, integrate them into normal patterns of living and livelihoods and political participation and service delivery. It's very difficult to have a normalization of life for traumatized individuals. And refugees, uh, let's not forget, you know, over 50% are under 18 years of age. Okay. We have another caller uh, from Tremont. Uh, Yo is on the phone. Good morning. This is Yo in Tremont. The thing that bothers me about the refugee issue is that everyone seems to acknowledge the need for people to flee war in their countries, but they aren't talking about the need to end making war a business in their countries. Thank you for putting on this program, and thank you to everyone for supporting Community Radio. Thank you. Comments? I, mean, I, I completely agree with the caller that we the only way to stop this tragedy of 65 million people on the move is to address the root solution, or the root causes of the problem in the countries in which they work. There's increasing dialogue between humanitarian and refugee organizations and organizations that help promote development and stability in countries and that's just an essential piece of this work is you've got to stop you've got to stop the causes yeah and um, you just mentioned a moment ago ray the idea of integration and uh, one of the speakers at the camden conference uh spoke particularly to that idea of integration uh in in the final panel and if we could have cut number two <clears throat> If we could have cut number two, uh, we'll, we'll listen to Andrea Bielak's concert. And if we're to acknowledge that the majority of the people displaced today are probably not going to cross a border and are certainly not going to make it to, to Europe or the US, I'd like to... Uh, recognize that we need to think about local solutions, uh, providing local solutions to to these people. And so I'd just like to 
um, mention the example coming from a, a research project that I worked on a few years ago looking at Congolese and Burundian refugees living in Tanzania. Some of them started um, their journey into Tanzania as early as the 1970s, coming from Burundi, from several waves of violence in the 70s, the 80s, the 90s. Um, and they settled in refugee camps uh, in Tanzania. There are two major refugee camps there, Nyahogusu and Kigoma. Uh, these refugee camps have, are quite informal, but they're massive. They're not as massive as Dadab, but, but they've been quite big. Um, and these refugees have been living there, had been living there for decades. Um, the children who were born into these refugee camps had never even known their country of origin. Um, so when the decision was made to start emptying out those camps and sending these people back through a voluntary return process, a lot of these refugees had no desire to return. And so the question of local integration came up. Um, and we interviewed hundreds of Burundian and Congolese refugees in Tanzania who gave us some really positive examples of and stories of how they felt that they were far more integrated in their country of uh, refuge, Tanzania. They spoke um, Tanzanian Swahili. They were Anglophone. Um, they had married for some locally with, with Tanzanians. Their children, uh, the lucky ones, went to school. They had set up local businesses. So why would they ever want to return to a country that they didn't know, to speak a language that they didn't know, and to have their children struggle in an education system that they didn't know? Um, so I think it's important, and I think it was, Musafa, you, you mentioned the, the issue of legal status, or maybe it was you, I can't remember. Um, but someone mentioned the, 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 the importance of legitimizing people in the places where they've found refuge when they actually want it and where it's possible. In the case of Tanzania, there may even be a possibility to grant some Burundians, not all of them, but some Burundians Tanzanian citizenship. Why not, when you've been living there for, for 40 years? So I think um, local integration is certainly one of the three what we call durable solutions to displacement that is not um, explored enough, that is not invested in enough. Uh, we tend to always want to return these people to where they came from, but um, I, would, I would plead for more local integration. Um, that was uh, <clears throat> a speaker from the Camden Conference uh, uh, Alexandra Bilak, who is the director of internal displacement uh, monitoring of the Internal Displacement Monitoring Center, uh, which is a program of the Norwegian Refugee Council. And uh, as you could tell, she has uh, concentrated much of her work in Africa. And the example that you gave, Jean, a few minutes ago of the Sudan, one of the reasons that so many of these examples are from the Southern Hemisphere is that 84% of um, displaced people live in the Southern Hemisphere. It's not something that is, uh, you know, we talk in the United States about immigrants. That's a different situation from refugees. We take in perhaps a million immigrants in the United States in a year. Um, we take in this year the president administration wants to take in uh, top the number of refugees at 50,000 that we take in. And so those numbers are really minuscule when we're talking about uh, 65 million displaced people in the world, 21 and some million refugees. Uh, the 
the idea of local integration, what does that mean? And it's really tough if you think about a place like the Dadaab refugee camp in Kenya, which is, I think, the largest refugee camp in the world and literally multi-generational refugee camp of uh, refugees coming over from Somalia mostly. Uh, And it's... Ray talked a little bit about sort of the governance issues because it's putting a lot of pressure on Kenya right now. There's been a lot of violence and uptick in violence from coming over the borders from Somalia. So there's been a lot of pressure on the camp and talk of closing the camp down. Um, uh, uh, But the question of absorbing that many people into a country is just really challenging for the country, the host countries as well. I mean, I don't, I can, I can understand the concern and I would love it, particularly for the, you know, the children, the grandchildren of the original refugees to have that, that access, but it is complicated for the host governments Mm -hmm. as well. And other examples, for example, um, in the Middle East, especially with Syria, you know, Syria tops the list for the numbers of refugees and IDPs, 5 million refugees from Syria. Over 7 million internally displaced people in the country. The total population is 22 million. So half the people of that country are forcibly displaced. And in Lebanon alone, which has a population of 4 million people, they have 1.1 million Syrians. So that the ratio of refugees Mm -hmm. to local population is over 25%. And that places tremendous strain on the country. All right. We have another uh, call, Lindy from Southwest Harbor. Go ahead, please. I can't thank you enough for airing this program. I listened to the uh, Camden conference yesterday. Um, the Syrian issue has really, really plagued me. And um, I have photographs of the Syrian people, and the boat people everywhere to remind me every day of the suffering. My question is this. Um, when um, it had become known that uh, Assad was using chemical weapons on his people, one where do those chem- chemicals come from? That's one. And the barrel bombs. And, and two, Obama then uh, said he would draw a red line, <clears throat> meaning that enough was enough and that we would probably get involved. Why did he not fulfill that 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 uh, commitment? And, and, and if I may, three, we have Putin who was actively involved in bombing Syria, and now a president who wants to form an alliance with this another madman. Uh, I wonder if you could address those three things. And uh, I just thank you so much for the work you're doing for these uh, refugees and trying to educate people uh, that it's extraordinarily important for us to have compassion and not hatred for them. Peace be with you all. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you for your call. And uh, uh, time for a disclaimer here. Um, We don't know, and nobody knows, as far as I can tell, uh, why Mr. Obama chose what he chose, because uh, we're not mind readers. (laughs) We're experts of some sort, but not mind readers. So that's a question that uh, it's very difficult to have an answer to. The effect of that, however, is something that um, we we can comment upon, the fact that there was a red line and then there wasn't, uh, certainly has had a contributory effect to the ongoing conflict in Syria. Uh, there certainly doesn't seem to be any doubt about that, uh, about forming some sort of uh, agreement with Russia 
we have an agreement with Russia at the moment uh, in Syria, not one that has uh, helped resolve the refugee crisis at all, that's for sure. Uh, but that but that is an existing situation. And the question of where chemicals came from, I personally have no idea, and I don't know if any of us do. Uh, certainly, those chemicals were um, most likely bought and possibly combined in Syria, but most likely bought from the great chemical companies of the world in Germany and the United States and, and many other uh, countries. So, uh, unfortunately, Lindy, we don't have the information to respond to that with any sort of precision. I, w I would say, and I'm glad the caller raised these questions, though, because I would say that there's an effect that these kinds of attacks have on the displaced. And in the work that I've done in Turkey with uh, Syrian refugees, they're very much aware that this is happening, that these kinds of attacks, the character of these attacks take place. And it affects their return intentions, for example, their willingness to go back to their homes. So many of them, for example, they may be willing to go back to Syria, but not to the place where these attacks took place. So then it's not necessarily a return. They do go back to their home country. But more and more, this is the last study we did among uh, Syrians that are in Turkey, only 40% were willing to go back to Syria, and an even smaller number were willing to go back to their home of record, their hometown, home city. And that raises some very interesting questions from a development perspective. What happens if and when there's a peace agreement? And people begin to flow back into Syria from Lebanon, from Jordan, from Iraq, and from Turkey. But many of these individuals are not going back to their home cities, their hometowns. You may see population centers in Syria which will double or triple in size because they will become the preferred return location. And think of, you know, Syria right now in the last damage and needs assessment we did, many of the towns and cities in Syria are suffering from very severe service delivery uh, deficits, right? There are wastewater systems, electrical systems, water systems. They're all challenged already for their established population sizes. If you triple the number of people in these places, the, the development challenges become much more extraordinary. And those are an example of, kind of the ripple effect from the character of the warfare now, as the caller alluded to, to what happens in the aftermath and what the quality of the challenges might be. I just want to refer back also to what the caller was speaking of in, in, in the the failure to deal with the red line was very personally disappointing. So Ray and I both started uh, much of this career working with refugees in, uh, in the Balkans. Uh, Ray worked in Bosnia and, and I sort of worked in the coast of a crisis. And in both of those situations, as difficult as bringing in external warfare and bringing in NATO bombing, it actually did turn the tide in both places. And so we saw, particularly in Kosovo, which I'm more familiar with, an immediate flooding back of people back to their homes once the NATO bombing uh, uh, helped stabilize what was happening, stabilize and funny word, but in, in Kosovo. And what happens then, if you can end it quickly, is you don't face the problems that Ray was just talking about, that in fact, you know, people are going right back to their perhaps destroyed homes, but their homes, mm -hmm. right back to their building up their lives. And so the faster, this, the tragedy of Syria is partially because this has gone on for so long. And, mm -hmm. and so it's all the more 
painful to think back about the what ifs. And the average duration of forced displacement now is about a decade. Uh, Palestinians have been displaced for 35 years, but the average is 10, 10 to 12 years for people who, who leave their homes under duress. Okay, I'd like to uh, remind you that you're listening to this special uh, call-in program on the themes of the Camden Conference. Uh, our guests today are um, Jean Burgot from Internews and uh, Ray Jenkins, who works with uh, refugee populations in many parts of the world. And uh, <clears throat> the the lines are open. If you would like to call in and join in the conversation or ask a question at 469-0500 or 1-800-643-6273. We we got a follow-up call from Lindy who um, asked if we might comment at all on um, Putin's involvement. I'm assuming that's in Syria, but uh, just in general, do you have any comments, insights, or thoughts about that? The answer, no, could be fine. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's, it's a little outside of, of the scope of work that I do. Jeannie, you may have uh, some insight on this. Well, looping it back to this this, this work and, the, and the, the topic of the day is, of course, what's happening in eastern Ukraine. And, in fact, that the, the violence, it was a direct sort of warfare both between Russia and Ukraine um, yeah, between Russia and Ukraine, and that, which stimulated the the internally displaced people uh, crisis that's happening in Ukraine. So, there, if the Syria piece is very, very complicated, that one is a little bit more straightforward. <laughs> there, mm. there was a war there, and it's um, caused all sorts of challenges in Ukraine. And in fact, I mean, it's a great point that Jenny brings up to um, in the most recent uh, travel to eastern Ukraine, like uh, I believe in Syria. Uh, the separatist authorities in the east of Ukraine had largely achieved a, a kind of, um, a, of equilibrium with Ukrainian forces. And for the most part, up until recently in Russian intervention, there was a certain momentum in that conflict which had you know, favored uh, rebels and, and anti-government forces in Syria. Russia's involvement changed the equation in both places. And in fact, the the fighting in eastern Ukraine doesn't get much media coverage right now, but it has uh, accelerated and it's increasing along the line of contact. It's unclear what that means, whether it's just to destabilize the government and escalate in order in Ukraine, for example, uh, just to preoccupy the government in Kiev or to actually try to uh, achieve uh, more territorial gains. Uh, but it's it's ramped up to be um, far more intense than it's been in about 12 months. And uh, it's clear it's also the case in Syria with the fall of Aleppo to, uh, or the re- retaking of Aleppo by government forces. There was a significant change in momentum in the Syrian conflict. And many, many see that particular development with Russia's assistance to have changed the tide of the war in favor of the government. Okay. Yes. Actually, just add something that brings it a little bit closer to the work that I do working with media around the world is that, in fact, the conflict in Ukraine and and many of the conflicts that Russia is involved with around the world is also part of an information war. 
the Russian government and state-controlled medias have really been putting out putting out a lot of propaganda, a lot of uh, alternative information, alternative facts, if we want to use a, a word from the United States, which really complicated the situation in eastern Ukraine, really made it very, very difficult for people caught inside to know what was really happening, who the perpetrators were of anything. And you, you'll recall some of the, the giant sort of... Uh, uh, Fantasies with the plane, the, the down plane, and and sort of you know accusations of what could have happened with that down plane in, in uh, eastern U- in Ukraine. So it's it's been it it complicates many 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 of the battles around the world. Is the information wars that we're seeing increasing everywhere as well? Tini, I'm just thinking you may want to speak to the role of social media in communications with the forcibly displaced and people who are outside of Syria and how they get information about what's happening inside and how compelling and trusted social media vectors are. Well, actually, it's interesting uh, to, to go back to the, yeah, the the Middle East and North Africa refugee situation. I, I went out to Greece uh, about a year and a half ago. We had a program that we launched there because when you heard about all the people crossing the Mediterranean into Greece and they all had their mobile phones and it was this huge deal. You could see them everywhere and you could see everyone charging their phones. So you thought, wow, this is the first refugee crisis where the information gap has been solved. Mobile phones have done that. So we went to do an assessment to see if that was really the case. And what we found is while the mobile phones are incredibly essential for communicating with your family, they aren't a good source of information when you're in these desperate straits. And we went to the beaches of Greece and discovered people had no idea where they landed. They didn't know they were on an island. They didn't know that they were in Greece. They thought they were they could just get on a train to Germany from there. So our intervention there, rather than going high tech with mobile technologies for informate to help fill the information gaps, was to put billboards on the beaches. But it literally said, you are here. The bus stop is here. The first place of getting support is over here. And put a map. No one had even seen a map of where they were going or where they were landing. And so social media, incredibly important piece of this, but sometimes it doesn't get you to the basic fundamental information needs that, that again, people in such a tremendous crisis are facing. So we at Interviews really believe in both high-tech and low-tech solutions to filling those information gaps. And the power of that that I've seen in the field, too, is that it, it helps uh, heat shield many of these very vulnerable, forcibly displaced people from misinformation and from being exploited. And the, po- the power of trusted information is absolutely vital in these. And there are great examples of uh, individuals who, by word of mouth, become trusted sources of information. And their cell phone number is circulated by word of mouth in refugee populations. And they get call after call uh, from individuals who just want to know from a trusted individual about what is happening, who should they talk to, how do they get a boat across uh, across the sea to Greece, and uh, how much should they pay, and where should they go? And this, these kinds of sources of information in these crisis situations are absolutely critical for well, people to make good decisions. Our our program in Greece, and we're looking at expanding to Italy as well, is really focused on that. In fact, it's all about rumor tracking because what the, the rumors are really really deadly in fact there was a rumor that if you got in your in your raft that you should puncture the boat before you got to the shore because if you didn't if you landed in a safe boat they would send you back so people were puncturing their boats out in the middle of the mediterranean to make sure that they got saved and were able to become asylum seekers and refugees so we've set up a whole rumor tracking 
program there where we, we, you know, we have people all throughout the different camps hearing what people are talking about, and then we'll get the facts, dispute, you know, put them out both via mobile technologies, via posters and billboards, via any way that we can get the information out just to dispel some of the worst rumors because it's just a, a hotbed of rumors in these places because, again, people are so very, very desperate. And it, this is a question, actually, that we're all kind of wrestling with in the United States in what is relatively a minor way compared to what you're talking about. But how how do you establish that some source of information, whatever it is, is a trusted source of information? Yeah, we. Uh, this is a big conversation at my organization right now. We, we, we say all the time that the challenge that we're facing in the United States right now and, and in, in the Western world is a challenge that the countries we've been working with have been facing for decades, that information is is all distorted and isn't and isn't easy to find trust. Our solutions are multi multifold, but one of the most important pieces is to make sure that the news and information is useful and relevant to the community in which you're serving, as you probably do at that, at this radio station. So the first way to rebuild trust is to make it useful and actionable information and make sure you're de- delivering that really basic service. And over time, if you're a, a producer of that type of news and information, you become a trusted source. And we've seen it um, in many, many places. The place I like to talk about the most is Afghanistan. We started working in Afghanistan in December 2001, just at the fall of the Taliban at the time. And there was literally no independent media. There was no media in Afghanistan. Uh, and over time, we built, helped build and nurture a network of over 60 community-owned, community-run radio stations, advocated for really good um, access to information laws, all sorts of you know amazing journalism schools. So in a very challenged country, there's a very vibrant and healthy media space. The media in Afghanistan is the number one trusted, most trusted public institution in the country, more trusted than the government, more trusted than re- religious leaders. But if if you invest, make it useful, make it community-owned and, 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 and run, uh, it can really make a huge difference in a country like Afghanistan. That's an interesting point because in a sense, um, when you are starting out at the level you mentioned, uh, there's a sort of ground truth. So if, for example, you're saying, well, the uh, you know supplies are going to be distributed by the big rock, 1.4 miles down the beach, and you go there and the supplies are distributed, you begin to believe yeah. and you can mm-hmm. you can verify it for yourself. Yeah. That's interesting. And one thing that we see, for example, and this ties into something Jeannie was mentioning, established populations as in Afghanistan, no matter what the media environment is, it's almost always the case that word of mouth and trusted information from family and relatives prevails as the most trusted source. That, that comes from social networks of established populations. But as soon as people get on the move and they're forced to leave their homes and social networks, those – They become very vulnerable. They're vulnerable. They can no longer rely on these networks. And so what's fascinating, we're doing a social um, network analysis right now for Syrian refugees throughout the Middle East, is to see how those social networks are recreated virtually through social media and what are the nodes of those social networks and to create, recreate in many ways this kind of uh, established pattern among relatives and trusted sources that you see in established communities now in forcibly displaced communities. And that how, mapping that gives us a sense of where people are getting their information and whether it's good information. 
Okay, that, that voice belongs to Ray Jennings, and the other belongs to uh, Jean Burgo, uh, who are with us here in the studio. And if you have a question for either of them or a comment, you can call 469-0500 or 1-800-643-6273. Uh, we've, we've been using the term refugee quite a bit and occasionally have even mentioned the term protection. But what uh, what is it that refugees are, if I can use the word, um, uh, supposed to be provided with if they are refugees? You mentioned earlier the 1951 convention and the 1967 addendums and so forth. Uh, what is it? I mean, if I'm a refugee and and I cross into another country, which I have to do to cross a border, uh, and and I say that I can't I'm fleeing because of the threat of persecution or possibly death. What what can I expect or not expect? That's not the right way to see it. What if all were ideal? Would I be expecting, according to international agreements and so forth? Ideally, the Refugee Convention provides for uh, protection from harm and protection against what's called the refoulement or being forced to go back to where you came from. And those are the two key provisions in the 51 Convention. Beyond that, however, it doesn't guarantee a right to citizenship, a right to work, or a right to be locally integrated. And this is why the traditional approach uh, to refugees has been humanitarian in nature that will allow you to stay here. And many host countries will say, we'll allow you to stay here, but doesn't mean we have to integrate you into our communities. In fact, the sooner you go back, the better. But because we're a signatory to the convention, we won't force you to go back, at least overtly. There may be the subtext of, we're not going to make conditions here so favorable that you'll be inclined to stay, that instead you'll be inclined to go back. And in fact, this is a complaint and something we wrestle with in the Middle East, in Jordan and Lebanon in particular. The refugees in Jordan and Lebanon, uh, less so in Turkey and Iraq, but particularly in Jordan and Lebanon, do not have the right to work uh, in a pragmatic way. They don't have citizenship. And um, conditions are quite difficult for them. So... That's what the refugee protections are kind of in a very shorthand way. In reality, countries interpret them differently and implement them uh, differently uh, in practice. Okay. Um, we've mentioned uh, a couple of times, Jeannie mentioned it a, a moment ago, that one of the things that would be um, ultimately a solution to a problem that as you mentioned earlier, is the worst since World War II, and that's 60 years ago now, uh, would be to get at the source of the problem. And how do you do that? What, first of all, what do you think is the source of the problem? And secondly, what are things that could be done to, to address it, to, to at least knock that 65 million number down a little bit? Uh, I would say a couple of things, and I'm normally a huge optimist in life, but I would have to say that in this situation, I'm not as optimistic given what we're seeing, the developments we're seeing in the world. Uh, the sub-Saharan Africa, where the vast majority of people moving over, over the last few decades, 
that famine is about to hit five countries. It's been declared, famine has been declared in South Sudan and is about to be declared in several more countries. And it is conflict-based famine. It's not a, it's not a, just a drought. We've got the effects of climate change that are having such a huge and profound impact already on so many people around the world. If you think about people in Bangladesh, for example, communities already moving away from the water. The forces at play right now in our world make this really, really difficult situation. I think every year for the next, for a, good long time we're going to be saying it is now the biggest number a year ago it was 60 million it's 65 million this year we'll be at 70 next year and that's the really tough part and and the 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 challenge is so profound and enormous that it is hard to get your arms around it it's also hard when you realize that the world is not embracing the challenge and not really you know coming together as a global community to address these challenges. These are massive undertakings to think about how to build stability in some of these countries. And it has been done in the past. We have a history of of transforming societies, if you think about post-World War II era and some of the amazing uh, examples of the world coming together and, and really changing a place. Uh, but we're not seeing indications of that right now. Yeah, I was just going to add to what Jeannie said. I think there's bad news and good news in the trends that I think we can expect. And uh, some of the bad news is that the reaction to the scale of the crises, as Jeannie just alluded to, has been the outsourcing of migration policy. So the European Union, for example, is paying Turkey an extraordinary amount of money, giving them resources to essentially keep people, keep Syrians and other refugees in Turkey and to provide services and the types of um, – uh, facilities for them that would uh, disincline them to come to Europe. You'll see the same thing begin happening in northern Africa, for example. And this outsourcing, I think, will continue in developed countries um, in the near future to try to, to uh, deflect inflows from these regions. The I United think- States has done that with Mexico uh, to pay Mexico to tighten its southern border yes, so that Central yeah. Americans don't make their way north. Yeah. And, but in Europe, for example, you, I think the next trend that you'll see is that Greece and Italy will con- and Hungary to a lesser extent will continue to be holding cells for those who have made it to the European continent. There are 80,000 migrants and refugees in Italy and Greece and Hungary right now are not going further. They're held in these countries in administrative and legal limbo. And I think that will probably be a a trend you'll see continuing until that's resolved within the context of the European Union. And just at the time that we need more resources to address the scale of the problem, I think you're probably also going to see funding for the United Nations High Commission on Refugees and organizations like uh, the International Organization of Migration, which works with uh, internally displaced people, that funding is probably going to decrease because of the political climate, unfortunately. And it's, it's already begun for the UNHCR. And this is precisely what we, we really have to address if we're going to have these specialized organizations work on these challenges we're describing. And unfortunately, I think we're also going to see more forced returns. There is in the 51 Convention a protection against what we call refoulement or pushing people back. But I think in very subtle ways, refugees uh, and asylum seekers are probably going to be encouraged to return to their home countries because the scale of the problem has now alarmed host countries. Um, but let me just n- inject a note of optimism because I think we, we it's not all bad news. In fact, 
in the last two years, something the scale of the problem has done is to bring together actors like the World Bank and the UN and other um, uh, regional development banks to look at this as a development problem, which is a significant paradigm shift for forced displacement because it has traditionally been a humanitarian problem left to humanitarian actors. And when it's a humanitarian problem, the idea of integrating these populations and helping them reestablish normal lives is not on the table. That's a development question. And there is a, now a significant amount of resources and new mechanisms that are being made available to countries that are hosting refugees and countries that have large internally displaced populations to get international assistance, development assistance, through the World Bank and through other regional banks and through UN mechanisms to address these problems developmentally, which means jobs training, getting them out of camps, on the local economy, uh, reskilling them for the jobs that are available in host communities, um, housing, and political inclusion and citizenship. And some of these are in property ownership as well. These are key elements to the normalization and local integration that I, I think one of the speakers you highlighted spoke to earlier. And that's happened just in the last 24 months. There's been a very rapid response. So that's the note of optimism I'd like to inject as we as we wrap this up. Okay, if anyone has a uh, last minute call, uh, you can call at uh, 4690500 or 1-800-643-6273. Um, it sounds like from what you just said that there's been a kind of a shift from um, from a moral stance about this to uh, a sort of structural or political stance, economic stance. Is that a shift that you've seen? Because we've always, uh, we've always thought of this as, in the past, as kind of a moral issue, a humanitarian issue, as you put it. Um, is, is the positive thing in your comment uh, essentially saying that um, by taking this from that sort of moral humanitarian stance, into a practical um, development and economic stance that we have perhaps a better chance of actually dealing with the problem? Humanitarian approaches will always be necessary, especially okay. on the front end of the crisis. But self-interest of the actors who host these populations and who may be affected by these flows will always be a factor. And the other aspect of this is that the countries that host refugees and that host internally displaced people are in some ways providing a public good for the rest of the world because these refugees and internally displaced people may well go farther and have effects on other countries. So helping them with the displaced helps in a public good fashion uh, provide stability. Okay, we have one last comment uh by a caller. Uh, Lindy, you're on the air. Hi, if I may be so bold, there is a climate change refugee, uh, refugee talk at COA tonight at 6.30 by a <clears throat> climate change scientist. And, and two, what would your uh, panel suggest just for the ordinary <clears throat> person uh, to do? Uh, where should I write? Or I talk every day about the refugee crisis. 
But do you have any suggestions what uh, somebody like me could do? Thank you so much for doing this. Appreciate okay. it. Thank you for calling. Well, I'd like to end on a note of optimism as well. In addition to the big structural and economic development issues, there is the human issue and the grace and generosity that you see of host communities and families, the generosity of Mainers who have accept, warmly welcomed refugees from around the world into this state, which I'm so very, very proud of. For the caller's question, there are wonderful organizations that are helping refugees in our own communities settle. One of the biggest ones in the world is the International Rescue Committee, an extraordinary organization uh, there are many, many others that are helping welcome and host these people. But it's not just here. Everywhere that I've ever been, the host communities with IDPs and refugees, mm-hmm. they're the number one first responders and the most important support system. Mm-hmm. And, in, and in this state, Catholic Charities, of course, is is central to the settling of refugees in this state. It was 700 uh, refugees last year in 2016. And also organizations like Mercy Corps, IRC, uh, International Rescue Committee, as Jeannie mentioned. These are non-governmental organizations doing great work on this front. So I encourage you to check them out as well. Okay. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for coming in, Ray Jenkins and Jean Burgo. And uh, for thanks to our callers. Uh, we've been discussing the theme of the uh, 2017 Camden Conference, Refugees and Global Migration, Humanities Crisis. Uh, If you are interested in listening again to the programs that we broadcast from the series here on WERU, you can go to weru.org and uh, look in the Public Affairs Archives. Thanks very much for listening. You are tuned to WERU-FM. 99.9 Bangor, uh, 89.9 Blue Hill, and all over the rest of the world at weru.org. Support for WERU comes.